Uh, Thomas Sowell is the closest thing this century has come to on the order of an Emancipation Proclamation. He is a scholar who has devoted his labors to looking behind the cliches of abjection, to sing out not that there is no such thing as racial discrimination on the contrary, not that there is an instantaneous route to affluence, but that the color of an American's skin is not a birthmark that commits him to substandard life. What is extraordinary is that the labors of Mr. Sowell, far from exciting the kind of enthusiastic reception one would expect, have met in some cases with near hysterical denunciations, even from some black leaders. It is as if the head of the Anti-Slavery League had denounced Abraham Lincoln for signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Indeed, that proclamation meant that there would no longer be slavery, but it also meant that there would no longer be an anti-slavery league. Thomas Sowell, was born in the South, but came north with his family as a boy, entered Stuyvesant High, from which he graduated going on to Marines, and then matriculating in Harvard. There he received a degree in economics, going on to Columbia for his master's, and to the University of Chicago for his doctorate. He has taught at Rutgers, at Howard, at Cornell, Brandeis, Amherst, was professor of economics at UCLA. He is now a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford. William F. Buckley, Jr., on November 12, 1981, almost exactly 30 years ago, introducing Thomas Sowell. As best I can tell, the only thing that's changed is the kind of glasses you wear, Tom. <laughs> but as uh, Bill said, you have spent your career looking behind the cliches of abjection. There was no one like him, was there? Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. As you've heard, today's guest is Dr. Thomas Sowell, whose newest book is... The Thomas Sowell Reader. And Tom, I begin by pointing out something the copy editor missed. You wrote in your introduction that you were summarizing the work of a lifetime, which of course should read, summarizing the work of a lifetime so far. On the other hand, when you're 81 years old, I think uh, the different <laughs> distinction is not uh, very great. All right, segment one, equality. A quotation and another clip. The quotation from the Thomas Sowell Reader, quote, if one confused word can gum up social policies, the legal system, and innumerable institutions throughout society, that word is equality. The video clip from the presidential campaign of 2008. My attitude is that if, if the economy is good for folks from the bottom up, it's going to be good for everybody. If you've got a plumbing business, uh, you're going to be better off if you've got a whole bunch of customers who can afford to hire you. And right now, Everybody's so pinched that business is bad for everybody. And, and I think when you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. Spread the wealth around in the name of greater equality for bus drivers and plumbers and construction workers. What's wrong with that? <laughs> What's wrong is the track record of spreading the wealth around. Uh, what has happened around the world and what is happening under the Obama administration is that attempt to attempts to spread their wealth are in fact spreading poverty. Why? Because you attack the people who are creating the most wealth, not only for themselves, but society. Don't forget, people don't get wealth just because they're greedy. They get wealth because other people voluntarily uh, pay them their money. And they voluntarily part with their money only because they're getting something that they consider worth it. So when President Obama says he wants to spread the wealth around, what he's saying is he wants to insert the government into voluntary... Transactions. Transactions. 
which doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a very simple reason. Right. Uh, uh, the, the people, the people at the high end of the, of the income scale, don't just stand still to be sheared like sheep. They send their money overseas as they're doing now. I was reading the other day about some company, you know, that, that needs some money for uh, expansion or whatever, uh, and they have overseas branches. Now they're making that money overseas, but they're borrowing money here instead of bringing it home. And they don't bring it home because it'll be taxed to death if they bring it home. Now you keep raising the taxes and they'll do more and more of their businesses overseas. Uh, and the, the jobs that are created will be created overseas. So this, this is not, whether they have high or low taxes on the rich is gonna affect the rich a lot less that is going to affect people who are looking for jobs and, and, and people who have small businesses like hardware stores and whatnot who can't move overseas. How come you see that and Barack Obama doesn't? Oh, my goodness. Well, he, he's, his whole life has been spent among people who have an entirely different vision of the world. Different from, from ordinary Americans? Different from you? Both. All right. And their vision... Uh, well, for one thing, it, it tends to be a one-step vision. They don't, they don't say, what are going to be the repercussions of this if I do this? Uh, and so they think that, you know, we shouldn't have tax cuts for the rich, you see, because that, that, the rich don't, don't need it, don't deserve it, and so forth. And, so and their analysis ends there. And it ends there. Right. Whereas if you look back through history, you find that when you have very high taxes on upper-income people, uh, you didn't collect as much revenues, in many cases, as you did with higher, lower tax rates. The Thomas Sowell Reader. Although differences in choices and performances are ignored or dismissed in politically correct quarters, such differences obviously affect differences in outcomes. And you then, in the Thomas Sowell Reader, compare the different economic records. This is fascinating. but I mean, there's a lot fascinating in here, but this struck me especially. You'd compare the difference in economic performance, not between whites and blacks mm -hmm. in this country, but between whites and whites in Europe. Yes. Tell us about the difference between Danes and Greeks. Oh, well, if you, if you look at Eastern Europe and Western Europe, the economic differences between Eastern Europeans and Western Europeans is greater than that between blacks and whites in America. And people ask, how, why is there such a gap here? Why is there such a gap there? They say, well, well ever, ever since the Civil Rights Act, why hasn't that gap uh, closed completely? I say, look at Eastern and Western Europe. They've been on the same continent. Europeans, they've been on the same continent for, for centuries, and the gap hasn't closed. So, you know, gaps don't close that fast. So we need to be, the underlying message here is be realistic about what actually causes growth. Mm -hmm. Be realistic about the durability of culture, even of economic culture, yes. work habits. And, oh, yes. All right. And don't worry about income inequality. Let well, the rich get rich as long as the poor are getting. In other words, you don't care too much about the, the gap, do you, or do you? Uh, well, much of the gap is fictitious in the sense that uh, uh, the same person is in the bottom 20% today, and 20 years later, uh, he's not, he, very few of them will, will still be in that bottom 20%. There'll be far more of them in the top 20% who started in the bottom 20 than there are who remained in the bottom 20. So one of the problems with our statistics is that they are about abstractions. They're not about flesh and blood people. The people move through these uh, brackets uh, over a lifetime. Almost everybody started out at the bottom and got as high as, the, as, as they got. That doesn't mean when they get high up that they are the rich. 
you know, they, they're someone who's arrived there at the end of 20 or 30 years. One more video clip, Tom, if you don't mind. It's hard to argue against that. Warren Buffett's secretary shouldn't pay a higher tax rate than Warren Buffett. <laughs> it is wrong that in the United States of America, a teacher or a nurse or a construction worker who earns $50,000 should pay higher tax rates than somebody pulling in $50 million. Explain by somebody who's making $50 million a year in the financial markets should be paying 15% on their taxes when a teacher making $50,000 a year is paying more than that, paying a higher rate. They ought to have to answer for that. And if they're pledged to keep that kind of unfairness in place, they should remember the last time I checked, the only pledge that really matters is the pledge we take to uphold the Constitution. <laughs> So, by the way, I have to make a brief factual correction. He referred to Warren Buffett's having made $50 million. Warren Buffett later announced that last year he made $62 million. Yeah, well, let's not underestimate <laughs> Warren Buffett. <laughs> All right. So, but he kept, the President of the United States kept talking about the prima facie unfairness of a secretary, what did he say, a teacher or a nurse or a construction worker paying a lower, a higher rate than a hedge fund manager or one of the richest men in the world, Warren Buffett. Now, th there's something to that, isn't there? One of, this, one, of, one of Barack Obama's great gifts is the ability to say things that are absolutely absurd and make <laughs> them sound not only plausible but inspiring. First of all, the vast majority of taxes are paid by people in the upper 10% of the end company. So the whole picture that he's painting there has no relationship to reality. It may well be that if someone has capital gains, that they will pay a lower rate of taxation in a given year. Of course, capital gains are not there in a, in a given year. Uh, you may have stock options accumulating over five or 10 years. And then in one year when you uh, when you cash them in, that year you have a spike in your income. Right. Uh, and so the, the capital gains tax takes into account the fact that this wasn't all earned that particular year, even right. though you got it that year. Right. So, you know, it's, 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 it's ludicrous. But, it, but it, it's, it's, it's very clever ludicrousness. Mm -hmm. Segment two, Karl Marx and Ronald Reagan. Um, <clears throat> the Thomas Sowell Reader is, of course, a book of analysis and opinion. Not long ago, I asked you, Tom, what opinion, what view do you regret having held? And you replied that for more than a decade, more than a decade, you had been a serious Marxist. Yes. Explain that. Well, as that decade began, I was in, uh, living in, in poverty. How old? 19 years old. 19. So you're in high, uh, you're starting college at that stage? Oh, or? good heavens, no. No, all right. I mean, I, I was out there working in unskilled jobs and trying to make ends meet, living in a rooming house. Up in Har you're living in, in Harlem? Ha in Harlem. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I, I'd heard about Marx, but I finally someplace found an old uh, secondhand set of encyclopedias for $1.19, which I bought. And there was, was a, an article on Karl Marx, and it seemed to me that he explained these situations so well 
that... Uh, and the situation was what? That you the, took the train from Harlem down to the lower well, end of Manhattan? No, I would, no, the other way around, coming home from work, I would sometimes take the bus, and it would go right up Fifth Avenue past all these glitzy places, and like cross 57th Street where all the fancy uh, stores were, and Carnegie Hall and the rest of it. And then finally, uh, it was, I got near home, it would kind of turn off this uh, viaduct uh, into 135th Street, and there was that sudden change uh, in the whole scene at that point. And the question was, why was that? And the problem was uh, two, two problems. One was that no one else had, had given any explanation. There was no competing explanation that sounded plausible. In your life so far? Yes, right. yes. Uh, and the other was that uh, no one had cautioned me that it takes an awful lot more knowledge before you can make these kinds of sweeping judgments in any case. Uh, but fortunately, I'd been uh, taught earlier to, to respect facts and so on. And so even during my years as a Marxist, I would read things by people who weren't Marxist. I would read facts and so forth. But you, you, I have heard you say many times that you got a good education in the New York City public schools yes. in Harlem. Yes. So they did. They taught you to think. They yes. may not have taught you Adam Smith and yes. the defense of free markets, but they taught you to think. Yes. All right. Now, but keep continue the story if you would. You're a Marxist at the age of 19, taking the bus home right. from the southern third of Manhattan Island right. all the way up to Harlem. You remain a Marxist at the University of Chicago under the instruction of... Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman. Yes. How did that... If, if Milton couldn't crack you, you were a tough nut. <laughs> well, uh, uh, but, but, but one summer working for the government as an economist was enough to uh, uh, show me that the government was really not the answer. That the, government, that the level of understanding uh, uh, among the people, and I, and I was in a, in a program for interns where we saw the top officials of the Labor Department and so forth, and, and I you, realized these guys are not going to save us. They, <laughs> in other words, they had no, they were not the priestly caste no. that you might have been led to expect. They were ordinary chumps bashing their way through life as best they could like anybody else. Yes. I see. All right. And so, but intellectually, all right, you spend a summer working for the federal government, and that cures you of Marxism. Yes. But intellectually, when do you pick up the thread of free markets? Oh, I guess, well, well, well I, I had always... Did, then I, you thought back to what Milton had said. That's right. It's, it's, not, it's not, not, not just Milton, but, but Hayek and the rest of them. Okay. Because I had read all those people while I was still a Marxist. A couple of, uh, you have a, uh, an essay in here entitled Marx the Man. Oh, yes. Quote, Marx's angry apocalyptic visions existed before he discovered capitalism as the focus of such visions. Yes. Explain that. Well, if you, you can, the, the poems he wrote in his uh, teen years, uh, one of them in particular I remember went to, to this effect that, uh, then will I walk, walk godlike and triumphant through the ruins of the world. So he has these... Uh, apocalyptic visions early on before he's ever even thought about capitalism. And what the subtext is, I take it, of your, it's entitled Marx, not the Marx, the political philosopher, not Marx, the economist, but Marx, the man. Yes. And what you're, the, what I felt reading that essay is, you're, in effect, it's like the scene in The Wizard of Oz where they pull back the curtain. Yes, that's right. The great and powerful Oz turns out to be an ordinary, cranky human being. Yes. And what you're saying is Marx is in, he's fascinating in some, highly intelligent, and in some cases, in some ways, kind of a nut. Yes. Just a man. Yes. All right. Another quotation from that essay. The members of the Communist League, we're talking now about the mid-19th century, Marx and Engels 
form or they participate in the Communist League, the members of the Communist League were overwhelmingly intellectuals and professionals. It had the same kind of social composition that would in later years characterize many radical groups in which the youthful offspring of privilege called themselves the proletariat. Marxism is the conceit of rich kids with fancy educations. Yes, you, you see that uh, in the, what is this thing called, uh, the Occupying Wall Street group. Uh, all these middle class uh, uh, accents and so on. I mean, how many working class people can afford to take a month off to sit around in parks uh, and carry on and, and have all their uh, electronic equipment with them and all the rest of it? I mean, come sleeping on. Sleeping in sleeping bags with the first rate down feathers. Oh, right, yes. Right. So, but at what stage was there a moment when you said, wait a moment, these putative Marxists and leftists and uh, liberals, to use the term the way it's used in this country, as a leftist, they have, no they have no knowledge of nor concern for what life is like up on 130th Street. That's right. There was That's a moment, right. was there a moment or an incident when that just struck you? Or was that kind of a progressive realization? It was, it was a progressive re re realization. All right. Ronald Reagan, the Thomas Sowell, I like ju juxtapositions here from Karl Marx to Ronald Reagan, yeah. but you do it yourself. One old-fashioned way to judge a president is by results. A more popular way is by how well he fits the preconception of the intelligentsia or the media. By the first test, Ronald Reagan was the most successful president of the United States in the 20th century. By the second test, he was a complete failure. Yes. The Marxists are rich kids with fancy educations. You've got the intelligentsia misreading Ronald Reagan. And you've got Tom Sowell from a very early age to the present, when he remains a fellow at Stanford, at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, making his career in academia all the same. How is it that you're able to swim against the current? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't be quite so truthful. This is television. We need to... Oh, I, I, I guess uh, partly luck. Uh, but 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 uh, uh, I know I don't know. It's um, there are there are places. I mean, there are pl well, like the Hoover Institution. No, it's no great uh, handicap to have the views that I have here. Uh, and there are a few other places here and there. Do you feel, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started shooting, we put up a notice on our Facebook page, Uncommon Knowledge's Facebook page, saying that you'd be a guest, inviting people to submit questions, hundreds of questions. You are unambiguously the most requested guest on our little program. And if you read some of these comments, it's clear they come overwhelmingly from young people, many, many wow. from college students. Do you feel a sea change? Well, I, I think there have always been people who have been uh, sort of the outposts, you know, sort of I, 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 I think of Beau Jest. But, but, <laughs> but no, there have always, always been some people like that. And uh, I'm glad they watch, watch your program. All right. Uh, segment three, love and marriage. Mm -hmm. The Thomas Sowell reader, quote, it may be a sign of our times that everyone seems to be talking openly about sex, but we seem to be embarrassed to talk about love. Yes. Explain that one for me. Well, I can't quite explain why that situation exists, but I, I do I have some ideas about the consequences of that. 
that people greatly underestimate the importance of uh, love. The human race could not survive without love, uh, not even physically, because uh, when a newborn baby enters the world, uh, there's an awful a lot of things demanded, uh, and uh, the baby is in no position to compensate anybody. Uh, and so the only thing is that the love of babies is what keeps them alive. And if the parents are so, uh, are so, so bad that uh, they don't have that, then the society has backup systems whereby the baby will still be kept alive. Mm. Again, the Thomas Sowell reader, love is one of those bonds which enable people to function and mm. societies to flourish without being directed from above. Yes. Love is one of the many ways we influence each other and work out our interrated, interrelated lives without the help of the anointed. Yes. Now, the, of course, the theme that runs all the way through this book, as we've already established, is the anointed, the intelligentsia. And what you're saying here is, in fact, a kind of brutal analysis. You are saying that their drive to power yes. is so extreme that in some way it leads them to smother their own natural instinct toward love and to disregard it in other people. Well, the, the, is that the, the, fair? Well, lo, well lo, lo, love is one of the things that makes it possible for us to live without the anointed telling us what to do. But there are other things, too, that uh, create independence that the anointed are very much annoyed by, ranging from guns to automobiles. That uh, the, the whole thing, you know, the very... You know, I think I see an answer to Occupy Wall Street. It's Tom Sowell, and we're going to call it Love, Guns, and Automobiles. <laughs> But, but go ahead, explain that, that ordinary people leading their own lives. Without any need to seek, seek direction from, from above, from the anointed, uh, that annoys them. Otherwise, they, they would be cut out of this loop entirely. All right. Marriage. Again, the Thomas Sowell reader. Despite attempts to equate married couples with people who are living together as domestic partners, married couples, genuinely married couples, not domestic partners, are in fact better off by almost any standard you can think of, close quote. Income. People who are married have higher incomes. Uh, domestic violence, the rate of domestic violence in marriage is a fraction of what it is among people who are simply living together. The abuse of children uh, in married couples, uh, families, is a fraction of what the, what the abuse of children is um, among people who are simply living together. So if you put it to an empirical test, it's just very clear that marriage makes a difference. Among blacks, black married couples have had a poverty rate in single digits every year since 1994. So there is a difference. Now, no-fault divorce, making divorce easier, this begins in, what, the 60s, I guess, is when it really picks up steam. There are a few states earlier than that. No-fault divorce is now uh, commonplace throughout, across the country. Most recently, we have gay marriage, mm. uh, New York, what New York is, I guess, the third largest state by population these days. New York enacted gay marriage. Is there, a, uh, am I reading too much? Would you see a continuum of a kind of animus against this fundamental institution of oh, marriage? Oh, yes. You would. Y yes. Uh, the first draft of the Communist Manifesto, which Ingalls wrote, uh, specifically wanted to uh, uh, dismember the family. And Marx uh, decided that that, that, that wasn't going to fly. Uh, and so when he rewrote it, he left that out. 
But that, but that's been there if you follow the left back over the past two centuries. You see in there one way or another where they try to undermine the decision-making autonomy of the family. Uh, Hillary they Clinton, sense it as an enemy from the very beginning. Oh, absolutely. The Hillary, and Hillary Clinton said, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Uh, and someone said it takes a village idiot to believe that. <laughs> uh, <you know. laughs> What they're saying is they want to come in there and tell them. You see, it's part of the whole thing of third parties wanting to make decisions for which they pay no price when, they, when, when they're wrong. You see, when, 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 the, when the parent raises the child the wrong way, the parent pays the price when the child goes down the tubes. But these third parties can sit back in their air, wherever, wherever they are, Washington or whatever, and if the things they tell us turn out to be wrong, it doesn't hurt them. For example, uh, f before we introduced sex education into the schools in the 60s, the rate of venereal disease had been going down every single year. Teenage pregnancy had been going down every single year. I think it was the uh, rate of uh, uh, infection for uh, gonorrhea in 1960 was half of what it was in 1950. So all these things were going down before the, the, the left came into the schools with their sex education. And all these things reversed and shot up immediately afterwards. But nobody paid any price. Nobody who pushed that paid any price for it. Mm. The Thomas Sowell Reader. I'm going to quote you, and then I'm going to quote John Kennedy. Okay. All right? The Thomas Sowell Reader. Four-letter words like love, duty, work, and save are hallmarks of people who make their own way through life without being part of some grandiose scheme of the anointed or of government bureaucracies that administer such schemes." Close quote. Ask not, John Kennedy said, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I thought to myself, I believe Tom Sowell would answer John Kennedy and say, no, don't ask what you can do for your country. That's already presumption and arrogance. Mm. Ask what you can do for your family. Yes. Ask what you can do to take care of yourself. Ask what you can do for your neighbors. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned one of the four-letter words, work. Mm. You also mentioned that you're now 81 years old. Mm. As I understand it from talking to your assistant, this is one of two books that you intend to bring out this academic year. Tom, you haven't had anything to prove to anybody for, well, you heard the way Bill Buckley introduced you 30 years ago. You were already an esteemed, why do you work so hard? What, 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 why what, do you keep at it? Take up golf, <laughs> gardening. Well, you, you, you missed the most important thing. Uh, I checked my uh, pension with TIAA. It's virtually identical with my salary, so I'm essentially working for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but why, why? There are things I, wa I, I, I want to do and things I want to say. And uh, I haven't finished saying them yet. The work has value in itself. Yes. All right. Segment four, national pastimes. I checked the index in the Thomas Sowell Reader. Ronald Reagan, whom you called the most successful president of the 20th century, appears on five pages. Babe Ruth appears on seven. <laughs> Tell me about the dead ball controversy. Oh my goodness! This, this is the argument that the that the uh, you see, see for the first two decades of the 20th century, uh, nobody hit as many as 30 home runs in a season. 
those who hit not Ty Cobb, none of the none of the people we, we revere as the great sluggers of that era. None. Nobody came to twenty. Right. Okay. And they came to came to thirty. Thirty. Sorry. All right. Uh, of those who got as far as twenty home runs, nobody did it twice. In the entire decade. And then quite the, uh, in the entire two two, two decades. De sorry, two decades sorry. of the twentieth century. Now the nineteen twenties come along, and there are all sorts of people who are hitting forty or more home runs and doing it more than one time. And so the argument has been made: they changed the ball. The problem is that if you if you look at the people who were the big sluggers prior to nineteen twenties, many of whom played the uh, played during the nineteen twenties, had 